Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. Joining me today is Spencer Ackerman, a longtime national security journalist for many outlets. His substack is Forever Wars. His new book is Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. Welcome to the show, Spencer. Thanks for having me, Trevor. What does the phrase, or maybe concept, war on terror mean to you? So, a couple things. Um, Programmatically, we mean something that has to do not just with um, the very high-profile military operations of the war on terror, Iraq, Afghanistan, then, you know, adjunct or additional um, military conflicts in Pakistan, Libya, Somalia, Yemen, Mali, Niger, you know, um, but also a set of transformative um, institutional relationships between the state and the citizen that happen at home. Um, The NSA, the CIA, the FBI, the NYPD, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, the military, um, all of these institutions um, of American hard power um, transform in a way that removes uh, legal and political and bureaucratic inhibitions on uh, their ability uh, to both use violence, surveil citizens, um, prosecute uh, an increasing web of association, um, criminalizing um, organizations, not that engage in acts of violence, but organizations that fund organizations that have adjuncts that uh, engage in acts of violence and so forth. Beyond that, terrorism in the era of the war on terror goes from a thing that many different peoples do, which is to say political violence, and changes uh, culturally and then operationally and politically into focusing on something that some people are. So the phrase war on terror um, that uh, we started hearing very early on after 9-11 represents something of a social compromise something that doesn't name an enemy um, and in so doing um, has certain pretenses um, to uh, ecumenicism, that it's not in fact focusing on any one particular um, form of terrorism or terrorist organization and so forth. Um, But, you know, this hasn't been a war against the IRA. Uh, So there was also from the start um, a kind of immediate social discomfort, both on um, the far left and the far right, about the euphemism behind the term war on terror, whereby um, there are elements of the far right that understand the war on terror um, as a war against a kind of marauding version of Islam and uh, demands a response that not just works toward Um, a goal of repressing that supposed civilizational onslaught, but that names it specifically as responsible um, for all of these violent acts. Doing so um, also inevitably has the effect of saying that other forms of terrorism are not as bad here or are not the main issue here. And on the left, it's a euphemism for how an extractive empire cloaks itself 
in innocence in order to uh, achieve its violent quest uh, for hegemony. And this circumstance metastasizes over the course of the last 20 years in really uncomfortable ways, not least of which the degrees to which politics take on this air of militancy and once done so, focus, this happens fairly early um, after 9-11, it's not uh, a more recent phenomenon, but it is an intensified phenomenon, um, toward those at home who are viewed as not just political opponents, but enemies and potentially violent enemies. And the tools of all of that state apparatus, all of that state security infrastructure um, remain in place 20 years after 9-11. And you can see the temptations um, in many cases manifested um, in you know recent administrations, I tend to look at um, Trump's actions uh, in the summer of 2020. Um, a lot of people on the right are looking at Biden's actions uh, post January 6th and wondering about the degree to which they are the next to have the war on terror used against them. And I would just argue that's an exceptionally dangerous circumstance to be in. Yeah, reading your book, I was thinking about the infamous phrase of you're either with us or against us, as was uttered by George Bush. But in some ways, that phrase by itself, depending on who utters it, kind of defines the era of the last 20 years, that you either Trump and the MAGA people would definitely echo that, but they have a different category, the people who are either with us or against us. But it seems like that the era itself got us into that kind of bifurcational thinking where everything is just sort of Manichaean and people are either on one side or another side. It, would you just sort of say that's not maybe not the inevitable product of 9-11, but where America ended up going is that type of thinking? Yeah, it's certainly where America ended up going. I think people, um, you know, people with uh, memories of uh, the national um, and elite politics of the 1990s um, might offer that, you know, 9-11 doesn't introduce a culture war um, into American politics. What it does is it melds extremely um, well with one and provides very volatile opportunities um, to a country that's already trying to cope with what its politics look like in an era of unipolar hegemony, in an era in which um, neoliberalism is now without a geopolitical you know, alternative and competitor, um, geoeconomic competitor as well, and and trying to kind of figure out what that looks like. You know, quickly politics in America, for a variety of reasons, turned on itself, and then nine eleven grasp grafts itself onto those circumstances. Um, ironically, there was a period after nine eleven um, where um, a lot of um, elite liberals in particular, appealed uh, to spirits of patriotism after 9-11 as a way to try and sort, sort of call a halt um, to a culture war that um, they didn't sort of want to um, examine for, you know, having any material basis to it because they benefited from, from that, um, you know, set of circumstances. Whereas you see pretty immediately 
um, from the figures around the Bush administration, um, they argue that, you know, 9-11 is a political opportunity for not just the Republican Party, but a certain faction within the Republican Party to achieve dominance and then achieve a sustained period of, um, you know, political um, political success. And that becomes kind of the great political hope throughout the course of the war on terror, where um, Republicans tend to be comfortable playing the politics of 9-11, a very paranoid uh, and a very, you know, violent politics um, that calls for um, the, the most punitive of solutions, shall we say, um, to, you know, real phantom uh, problems, problems that um, the United States very often engenders through its seeking of retribution um, in such violent and exploitative ways. Whereas you see among liberals this corresponding fear that if they roll back this thing too much, then they will suffer the flip side, the sustained political marginalization um, that they have like really searing experiences of from um, the post-Vietnam phase of the Cold War um, without putting together the role of embracing uh, the catastrophic Vietnam War and the mindset uh, of hyper-acceleration um, inside a Cold War context that led to that circumstance. So liberals embrace and try and make the war on terror technocratic, uh, a, a kind of um, tambourine mode that they are most comfortable with. Um, and accordingly, by the time Trump comes along, they are, even though Barack Obama is in many ways elected to end the Iraq war, liberals and Democrats become associated with the war on terror as it has become a sustained catastrophe rather than liberals and Democrats achieving power by arguing that it is time to end the catastrophic war on terror. The war on terror at the time, I mean, I, I, I was, you know, a, a young man and remember 9-11 and what came after, but it made sense. I mean, in the abstract, at least, none of us at that time after 9-11 would have bet that there would not have been another significant terrorist attack within the next few years. And so that fear that you kind of described, especially from the Democrats who didn't want to maybe use the same rhetoric as the Bush administration, but also didn't want to be overseeing a government that had another 9-11 style attack. So it's interesting when I'm reading your book, I was like, okay, does he think that the entire thing doesn't make sense? That nothing that they did made sense whatsoever um, and was none of it was worth it, or were there some amount of increased surveillance security or something that that could even retroactively be seen as worth it? I mean, I would argue none of it is worth it, especially because when you question what worth it means, um, on the one hand, we're looking at the absence of other terrorist attacks as an abstraction, uh, a counterfactual. Um, that we can't answer. Whereas if we look at the world we inhabit right now, the war on terror killed, according to Brown University's Costs of War projects, at least 900,000 people. It generated tens of millions of refugees. Um, I don't really think there's a circumstance in which you can say, um, when considering the real human atrocities that the war on terror has yielded, that something here is worth it. I think what the question 
you know, fairly gets at is, is there a sense in which, you know, it, it wouldn't have been quite as all or nothing as I might be making it out. Right. And, and the way I would address that is that when you look at what the war on terror isn't, you kind of see more clearly what a response to 9-11 could have been. And then when I, after I outline that, I want to kind of look at why that didn't happen. So first, what might have been? Well, when you look at the authorization to use military force, the principal um, authorization uh, that comes in response uh, to 9-11 that establishes the war on terror, it's specific only about one thing, which is that the president gets to decide who any of this stuff is aimed against, provided they can tell, you know, some acceptable uh, narrative whereby uh, there's some kind of connection to not necessarily the 9-11 attacks itself, but the people who knew the people who knew the people, um, you know, responsible for 9-11. So right there, we're talking about an enemy that by design is sprawling and not specific, an end state that can't be achieved, an end state that in its place is the prerogative of whoever's elected president. And I would argue that conceptually, right there is where the war on terror is doomed to failure, because you are no longer talking about retribution for a particular thing that was done against the, you know, specific people that did it. You're talking about building out something whereby the sustained application of American military power and all of the adjuncts that go with it all across the world for all time is set up. So I think right there, you kind of, you know, take this moment where you sort of see what, you know, imagine if 9-11 is responded to with exactly what the dominant forces at the time said, you know, would, would have been the most awful circumstance possible, a law enforcement approach, whereby those who committed materially committed and then materially assisted, planned and so forth, um, the attacks of 9-11 would be captured and put to trial. Well, there's no sense in which, A, uh, when looking at, you know, the various legal and political and military alternatives that are on offer that wouldn't have been preferable to the mass destabilization of, you know, entire regions of the globe, the imposition of enormous um, human suffering and then responsibilities upon the United States for how to dispense with this circumstance that in the process, completely unilaterally and secretly rewire the relationship between the citizen and the state in terms of making the state from a structural perspective, able to capture all of that citizen's digital footprint, the basis of what the records and things to be seized mentioned in the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution translate to in a contemporary context. And in the course of development of such an extensive period of neither peace nor victory after that, a circumstance that survives even the killing of the person who 
designed 9-11. Instead, there's only this sustained period of indecision, of suffering without conclusion. I just think that that is the circumstance that if you were to tell people, you know, right after 9-11 is the alternative, the, 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 the you know, the path that will be taken, then I don't think a single person would say that, oh, well, that sounds preferable to just like putting the people who actually did this on trial, denying them martyr status, denying them the status of kind of world historical figures. Um, you know, that would have been, you know, perhaps a world in which there is additional terrorism and certainly additional uh, jihadist terrorism. But then it's important to look at, and this gets us to why this didn't happen, the circumstances that made 9-11 possible and the ways in which, when you look at what Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden actually said, what they were trying to do, what they described doing in horrific and unjustifiable ways, is retaliating against an America that declared itself fit to dictate and do so violently and expropriate, um, expropriatively um, outcomes for the Muslim world and specifically the Arab world. And what the United States has done ever since is in order to deny that there had, was any relationship between US hegemony in the Middle East and 9-11 has been to simply say that that is a question that does not deserve a respectable hearing and accordingly responded by accelerating all of the circumstances that bin Laden cited to justify atrocities like 9-11. And very early on after 9-11, what we would now I think recognize as a cancel culture took hold, whereby um, in the media, in politics, um, and you know, especially even in uh, emergent forms, of, of, of media, not quite social media yet, but I remember, and you may as well, you know, the post 9-11 blogosphere that, that really kind of, you know, accelerated a lot of these censorious habits in this kind of meter of, you know, righteous patriotic emergency. But, you know, people who argued both, you know, on the socialist left and on the nationalist right, that there is a material basis to 9-11. It doesn't excuse 9-11, but it does mean that without addressing it and redressing it, America is going to make this entire problem worse. And then on top of it, this accelerated imperial, violent, and anti-democratic you know, anti um, turn also makes everything a lot worse, both ho at home and abroad. I was actually thinking that to the cancel culture. I like that analogy. I mean, for in the libertarian sphere, you had Ron Paul having, you know, the audacity to suggest that maybe we had something to do with why we were attacked and he was shouted down. But I feel like in the course after that, that was 2008, in the years after that, that became a much more acceptable position. And it's much more acceptable now in the sense that, you know, we, we did roll back some of the global war on terror or or did we i guess is a better question did it's it's is it rolled back by obama is it rolled back because of some recognition that maybe 
you know, we contributed to why we were attacked? I think that's a great question. And the answer is, is that there are several rollbacks, but in each of them, far more of the architecture of the war on terror gets entrenched than is removed. So for instance, what's what's gone from the war on terror right now? Well, there's no more military occupation of Afghanistan. That's a big deal. There is no more CIA torture and black site programs. As far as we know, that's a big deal. Um, all of, there, there is one uh, bulk surveillance program uh, that um, Edward Snowden's leaks uncovered in, in 2013 that is removed, but bulk surveillance not only remains um, the you know, way of doing business um, that the intelligence agencies have, but, you know, we learned a couple weeks ago that the CIA has been conducting its own bulk surveillance program about which we know extremely little, except that uh, it amounts to a mass theft of Americans' data. And no one has really kind of blinked an eye that hasn't really moved the dial at all. And that's the sort of thing that, you know, I'm talking about, you know, the, the hyper um, militarization of American police is in many ways attributable to the way that the Department of Homeland Security operates as a slush fund to take public money and distribute it under an extremely thin pretext of relevance to, you know, counterterrorism needs to police departments around the country. You know, the famous uh, 1033 program that the Pentagon has uh, to take, um, you know, excess spare material and other military hardware and give it um, to um, to uh, police departments. Uh, that's a substantial program. The two Department of Homeland Security programs that do that are three times as large. Um, so those are just small ways, institutional ways and ongoing ways that the maintenance of the war on terror has, you know, not just you know, taken root, but is normalized and is increasingly not seen as such anymore because once it is normalized, the tools that were once exceptional tools that required exceptional grants of power, or in many cases, simply exceptional assertions of power, not always done publicly, um, for their creation, operation, and maintenance are now distributed across um, government agencies for routine operational use. Um, one of the famous um, uh, documents that Edward Snowden leaked about um, the PRISM uh, system of NSA surveillance um, talked about how some of the materials um, necessary for intelligence products that PRISM reaped had to do with things like, um, you know, concerns about Venezuela. You know, we're not talking about terrorism anymore. We're not talking about Al-Qaeda anymore. We're talking about a useful uh, series of technologies, operations, organizational, institutional culture, bureaucratic rules, and um, weak legal safeguards that are very enticing to intelligence and law enforcement agencies. When George Bush talked about terrorism, and especially Islamic terrorism, 
he made a point to try, uh, usually try to say that this was not a war against Islam, that there was a, a t- you know, there was one group, subsection, people who are often have, are is, have Islamic beliefs, but it's a type of extremism that is not represented by the entire religion. How was that rhetoric sort of, how has that rhetoric affected the progression of the war on terror? Because it seems that it's still with us, this discussion of are we fighting Islam or not, even though it's you know 20 years later and it's clear that we're not fighting Islam, but it's still an important question that especially Republicans care a lot about. <laughs> so to go back to you know what I was saying about how from the start, the name war on terror is a social compromise and a euphemism that kind of chafes people who hear it, who are looking for something kind of more direct about who, in fact, the enemy is. And then also the way in which that basic indecision of the concept of the war on terror um, kind of inhibits the ways in which um, that message uh, that Bush, you know, is making about Islam will be received, that fundamentally there's a mixed message here that Bush, you know, after kind of stumbling and, you know, falling on some language that he might have regretted about how the war on terror would be a crusade, which of course has, you know, deeply religious overtones that have a lot of kind of incendiary um, political connotations that go with it. Then he goes and says, look, we're not talking about Islam qua Islam, you know, Islam is is something else. American Muslims are American. The trouble is, is that the architecture that he creates for the rationale that he accepts is going to give those who see the war on terror as a war on Islam with every opportunity and technological possibility that they could possibly want. And within a couple months of Bush saying what he said, you had very important um, voices in American religion with constituencies on the right that were saying exactly the opposite, that they understood 9-11 in religious terms, in understanding it in you know the history of political conflict between Islam and Christianity. And you know, to give you know one example, um, you know, Chris Kyle, the American sniper. Um, writes one of um, the most, like the highest selling books, you know, a memoir of his, um, you know, as as uh, my, um, as, as um, Matt Cole uh, has a forthcoming book called Code Over Country. It goes into the ways in which, you know, Chris Kyle went into some, you know, mythology um, of himself and of, um, you know, being a sniper for the Navy SEALs. But what's significant is that in his uh, book that comes out, um, you know, nearly a decade after 9-11, Kyle is talking about uh, the people he kills as savages and constantly contrasting um, Islam with Christianity in good guy, bad guy terms that ultimately uh, you get the impression that what it, it doesn't matter so much to Kyle and to the people Kyle um, wants, you know, to kind of leave them with this point that, you know, the acts of specific people are the issue here, but rather a clash of civilizations is taking place and it's going to require people to be American snipers. Um, 
so the implication there is he's really and sees himself as Jesus's sniper. And that has a political legacy throughout the war on terror that you can see right now um, with the ways in which, you know, discussions of quote unquote radical Islamic terror take on this kind of shibboleth quality um, in MAGA world. Um, and, you know, maybe it may be better to just sort of like leave it there for now because I probably talked a lot about that. Um, but it's a legacy that 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 established itself establishes itself very early and in contradistinction um, with this, you know, speech that Bush gives. Now, when I couldn't pick up from the book what you what exactly, I mean, maybe I, I wasn't reading closely enough, but when Obama takes over, how in terms of what I guess we could guess what his own opinions were about what he wanted to keep doing or not keep doing with the war on terror. But it seems like things change pretty quickly, possibly mostly due to the security state, and that he and that what he originally wanted he doesn't get to do, or he's convinced not to do, I'm not sure which one it is, by the security state and that apparatus. And so he's still up, he's still doing it, you know, throughout his entire presidency. But but did it go differently than he thought it would? Everything about this went differently than Obama thought it would. Um so from from the start, there is this you know tension within Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, um, because the only way that it can succeed is to knock off Hillary Clinton. Obama does so by identifying her with an Iraq war that he opposed and that um, the base of the Democratic Party is furious at its leadership for supporting, including people like Hillary Clinton, like Joe Biden, like John Kerry, basically the generation of contemporary Democratic leaders. And as Obama finds this line of attack to be succeeded, as, as Obama succeeds with this line of attack, he kind of um, obscures how he is not talking about abolishing the entire war on terror. Instead, he starts talking about, because he's going to face John McCain, who's like the war on terror on horseback, a kind of right-wing vision of what a more noble war on terror might look like, a more competent war on terror. Um, and here, Obama is trying to inoculate himself against attacks from McCain of weakness um, by situating a kind of trade-off. You you end the Iraq war so you can duly focus on the necessary war on terror. That war on terror needs to be constrained in important ways so that it doesn't endanger the United States through excesses, you know, look at something like the Iraq war and so forth. And that will be um, how the Obama administration sees its role in the war on terror and approaches it. Now, notice a couple things there. First, very importantly, this is not an abolitionist perspective. Despite a lot of hysteria that Obama was greeted with, both on the right and within the security agencies, Obama is talking about meeting out the war on terror at a kind of lower altitude um, than the Bush administration had, but not landing the plane. Secondly, that requires Obama to make compromises with the entities that are going to be carrying out his war on terror. So 
if you need the CIA to do drone strikes, you can't prosecute it for torture. Um, if you need the NSA to carry to you know intercept um, everyone's data in bulk for you know allegedly suspicions of who might you know possibly detonate a bomb in the United States, then you can't not you know you can't even you know turn those you know programs off. Obama. Uh, famously, in the months before taking office, votes to institutionalize warrantless surveillance um, during an important April 2008 vote in the Senate. Um, you want the U.S. military to withdraw from Iraq. Um, you give the military ultimately a wider berth than Obama you know, um, sought to do um, in Afghanistan to escalate. Um, so Obama isn't an abolitionist. And in doing so, there's this sort of third element to it, which is that you start defining what abuse is in the war on terror as a deviation from the thing rather than the thing itself. And there is where a great shock is experienced by Obama's more left-wing supporters at the beginning of the administration, when they see that taking root in the course of the first year of Obama's presidency, and then especially in the second, um, where Obama is consolidating the war on terror more than he's getting rid of it, and then ultimately wielding it and taking it into new frontiers, um, whether it's drone strikes or whether it's an undeclared war in Libya. By the time the, the interesting connection here is that in your book is getting to Trump and the connections you make to Trump. And it seems that the predominant narrative about the Obama years, and this is true for a lot of things, such as immigration, is that you know he was weak on immigration, he was weak on the war on terror, even though he did, as you pointed out, fight a war in Libya. I sorry, I'm sorry, not a war, a kinetic military action. Yes, uh, indeed. Probably the most Orwellian thing that I've like phrase I've experienced in the last 10 years. But the the perception of him being weak, I mean, he, even though he deported more people than any president ever, there's still more than Trump. Did. More than Trump. There's still multiple perceptions that seem to bring Trump into, you know, at, at least a claim and that the kind of stuff that he starts saying to get prominence that he's just weak. And so it was just maybe that Obama didn't say the right things, even though behind the scenes he was doing all these things. Well, I don't think you can really, you know, neglect the ways in which um, the fact of the Obama presidency, um, you know, prompts like just enormous right wing rejectionism, not necessarily because of stuff Obama did, but because of who Obama was. And especially, you know, look at something like birtherism, you know, which, which, you know, launches the modern phase of Donald Trump's political career. The war on terror is all through birtherism, because it's not just that Obama isn't an American citizen. It's not just that he's Kenyan. It's that he's a secret Muslim. And the war on terror has spent nearly the past decade telling you that this sort of person is not your political opponent. This sort of person is your enemy. This sort of person is here to kill you, kill your family, subvert and replace your constitution. And now he's the president of the United States. And what are you going to do? And this is what is, you know, perhaps um, a lesser appreciated factor animating birtherism. Trump takes this 
like he takes a whole lot of other um you know nativist subtexts and um path dependencies of the war on terror and makes it really explicit and he does it in a way that no longer um unlike every other republican leader no longer pays lip service to this kind of idea that the wars are valuable or are anything other than a disaster. Um, so there's like a whole lot of like just uncomfortable. You see it really in, you know, the Romney campaign. You see it with the Tea Party. Like you you get both a reflection of an exhaustion with the operations overseas of the war on terror with the ways in which they seem to impose uncomfortable and expensive and open-ended obligations upon the United States when it's supposed to have been, you know, this valorous exercise of American might and the ways in which those express themselves um, in conservative politics around this time, like right before and then during Trump is through embracing both civilizational um, rhetoric about them. Like, uh, you know, there's um, a tower in lower Manhattan, that's going to be a monument to 9-11 that the Muslims are setting up. Or, you know, they're trying to replace the Constitution with their Sharia law. Um, and then, you know, by the time Trump runs for president, you'll remember from the, the Golden Escalator speech, how many times Trump is talking about ISIS. As ISIS represents here this kind of ultimate failure of the people who have been telling us that the war on terror um, is this, you know, epic, um, if not quite crusade, you know, necessary task. And look what we've gotten from it. We've gotten nothing from it. And there is this frisson that, you know, gets set off that makes Trump look, ironically, given that he lies about everything, as more of a truth teller than the euphemistic and highly political ways that the rest of the Republican field and, you know, on the left and the Democrats with Hillary Clinton are explaining these failures away and trying to sort of posture them as that they're in fact not failures, they're wisdom. They're, you know, the right ways that the rules-based international order requires in order to safeguard the prosperity and freedom of us all. And all of this seems both like abstract and absurd. Uh, to a lot of people who don't see what they actually got out of all of this. And Trump has explanations for it. He says that what's happened instead is that the weakness of our hated political opponents has now infected the war on terror. And what you need to do is not get yourself so entrenched in the operations of foreign overseas wars, but all you do is you just ramp up the violence in all of them and get less discriminating about how you go about doing that. And that becomes, when you look at what the Trump administration's actual record on the war on terror was, much more of a you know accurate map to what um, the MAGA era of the war on terror thus far has actually been. By that, you mean that it the, by just sort of talking about the brutalism and the need for just expanding the brutalism of the war on terror. They're, they're kind of at least describing it more accurately than the Obama administration did. Is that kind of what you meant? No, no, no. Sorry. What I, what I meant by that is like when you look at Trump's four years in charge of the war on terror, the picture that actually emerges, which wasn't always the kind of media narrative about him, 
is a narrative very often of acceleration, acceleration of drone strikes. You know, Somalia especially becomes kind of to Trump what um, Yemen uh, or Libya, uh, what, well, probably Trump doesn't, let's, let's make it Yemen because Obama doesn't start that war. Trump doesn't start Somalia, but you know, much as Obama like turns the dial up to 11 on war in Libya, Trump does the same thing in Somalia. Um, most surveillance activities under Trump, despite, you know, Trump talking endlessly about, uh, the perfidies of national security surveillance when applied to him and his coterie surveillance on everyone else in America accelerates. It does not in fact, um, can, uh, constrict, um, and kind of on and on in, in that vein, um, the war on terror under Trump, just like under Obama does not in fact like experience like a withering away um or even a substantial restriction despite the ways in which um the perfidies of the war on terror you know operated as a rallying cry to either of their respective constituencies it's always struck me that one of the parts about being an american uh that colors so much of our foreign policy is that we kind of feel like that we can kick anyone's ass on any sub any in, in a militaristic sense that we have to kind of feel that way and that's you know, we if and that so simultaneously we fight wars and we we want to fight them all with one hand tied behind our back but we all but we there's a belief in the back of the head that says if we ever really did fight it all the way that we would just be able to steamroll anyone essentially and that, that we have to kind of believe that about ourselves as americans and it seemed to me that that had a huge factor what the way that Trump talked about what needed to be done. It was just that we, you know, we can do it. We just have to, we just have to do it. We're America. We know we won world war II. this kind of stuff, uh, just to sort of return that sense of greatness to the American psyche, which is where of course, so much of this brutalism comes from. So like one of the things that I try and focus on in the book, um, is the ways in which Trump, when he talks about, the war on terror as a presidential candidate, he hits, I think, an underappreciated emotional theme, uh, which is what he's saying when he says, we don't win anymore. There was a, a kind of mythical time in which America was constantly winning, um, not just from an economic perspective, but from a martial perspective. And we know it's in us. Um, we just have to like turn this franchise around um, like it was a sports team. And that no less than the way liberals talk about war as a humanitarian enterprise and a necessary enterprise um, to maintain global stability and order, that speaks to, you know, these are both tributaries from the same fantastical river of American exceptionalism. And without addressing the ways in which American exceptionalism you know, operates as a kind of, you know, narcotic to American policymakers um, and, you know, as well to American capital, then we're going to be stuck in this kind of horrific cycle um, because the path dependencies of having this kind of extractive and brutal um, hegemonic footprint over the world are such that you always have to deal with challenges to it. Those challenges are very often violent. Um, your elites will demand a response in kind. There will be destabilizing impacts on the people that have to suffer through this in the backyards where they do it. It's just a, a horrific cycle 
that left to its own devices can escalate just by inertia. And it is in that spirit that I wrote this book to call attention to the ways in which like all of these really ugly factors feed on one another and grow strength from one another and require active measures um, to unravel them. Now, Biden is a longtime veteran of fighting the war, war on terror and, and being involved, of course, as a senator and then as vice president under Obama. Does he have the same old school views? I mean, ending Afghanistan as much of a as sort of botched, at least in how they did it, was was at least doing something different from the last 20 years? Or, or do you expect or currently what happening just the same old, same old because of the milieu that he has come come from? You know, with with Biden, um, there's a repetition of the same impulse that we saw when Obama was elected, that the the enterprise itself is ultimately still valorous, but its excesses have to be trimmed off. And once you do that, then you can, you know, appropriately um, address like what the as as they like to call it. Um, the you know the the counterterrorism threats of today and tomorrow, rather than the counterterrorism threats of yesterday. Where you saw also an echo of Obama in the way at which um, when Biden was withdrawing from Afghanistan, he used maximal abolitionist rhetoric about the war on terror to achieve a minimal from the perspective of abolitionist result, an important one, but still minimal. It is very significant when you look at what. Um, the withdrawal from Afghanistan has been that first when he was conducting it, he um, reserves upon the United States the right to bomb Afghanistan as need be, which implies a right to surveil Afghanistan as need be. And then since the U.S. withdrew from, from Afghanistan, um, the Biden administration has engineered what can only be described as a human rights atrocity in destroying the institutions of Afghan finance, making a famine in Afghanistan vastly, vastly worse, and ultimately deploying against the people of Afghanistan a sanctions regime that should be more properly understood as an inflation weapon. And an inflation weapon works not against the people in power, who uh, the sanctions are theoretically predicated against, but by making everything worse for the people on the theory that enough horror inflicted on the people will prompt them to oust a regime. There, you know, if this is what the rules-based international order in fact is, then it has to be looked at as a threat to people's lives and freedom. And I think that is something that not just the Biden administration is not prepared to come to terms with, but the entire US foreign policy establishment has proven itself throughout the war on terror, not able to come to terms with. I would describe in, in the sense of what you just said and just overall is your book, when you, at the end of your book, I would describe it as pessimistic uh, in terms of where this is going. Uh, you, we have, I think the most interesting observation in your book is, is sort of what I mentioned about the, the kind of brutalism of American politics that I think you rightly put at the at 9-11 and the aftermath. But it just seems like the brutalism is going to continue. And unless we adopt a less 
brutalistic mindset, it's not going to get much better. Well, I, I try not to put things in terms of like optimism and pessimism. I try and view things in terms of like obligation. So like America created the war on terror. I think that makes an American's obligation to end it, um, not just for uh, the lives, livelihoods, and freedom of people around the world, but for our own, to the point where um, if we stop and think about it, perhaps we don't want um, American politics to become militarized at home while it's so deeply and very sharply divided. Um, and perhaps we might think about the ways in which where you know where the mechanisms of the state that the war on terror has entrenched really really in such a context threaten americans primarily um and more and more americans um larger spheres of them uh for different purposes and the more in which uh the longer that they're entrenched the more normal that's going to just seem and become um, and that, I think, is a very ominous prospect um, for America, no matter where you are on the political spectrum. And I think once that realization occurs and takes root, then you actually have the roots of something very optimistic and positive, which is the prospect of a politics of solidarity um, that can come together to end a mutual threat. And perhaps that is a, a way in which something that, you know, if you want to put it in these terms, um, optimistic can emerge out of something pessimistic. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.